welcome visitors. If you're uh, joining us uh, for the first time or just uh, checking us out here at Calvary, welcome church family and welcome to all our brothers and sisters who are with us online as well. Uh, Chris, yes, Chris and Donna are up in Perth just uh, with uh, uh, Jared and Laura just awaiting the birth of uh, their child. Uh, so yeah, remember them in prayer and let's, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your goodness, for your grace, for your amazing love extended to us through your Son and what your Son, Lord Jesus, has done for us upon the cross. We praise you, Lord Jesus, King of kings and Lord of lords, for what you have done, what you have won for us, uh, that we may know you, that we may love you uh, and worship you for all eternity. Uh, we thank you for your spirit, for your word, for your body, the church. We commit this time into your hands. We pray that you would open our eyes, our hearts and our minds to your word, that you would uh, transform us by the washing of your word, that you would encourage us, that you would challenge us, that you would uh, grow us uh, to be a people who uh, bear your light, bear your image well. So help us in this, we pray. We, we admit our lack and our need uh, of you uh, in our lives. So, so please help us in this, we pray. In your name, Lord Jesus. We are in Psalm 51, so if you'd like to turn to Psalm 51. Now, Psalm 51 uh, was written by David at one of the, probably the most darkest, most despairing, most broken, most painful and most lonely times in his life. God had publicly exposed his sin of adultery with Bathsheba and uh, his murder of Uriah, her husband, uh, by Nathan the prophet. And you can read the background of that in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12. So I encourage you uh, later on to, to read that background to get the, the context of this psalm. Now, Psalm 51 is probably the most heartfelt and transparent psalm in, in the whole book of psalms. And so for that reason, it's, it's, it's a powerful psalm, a psalm that we should read and meditate upon. Now, it's a psalm of confession and a psalm of repentance as, as David pours out his heart to God. And it's, it's a, a powerful statement regarding human sinfulness, our sinfulness, and therefore the, the terrible need... Uh, for repentance um, and of God's holy work of forgiveness and reconciliation and transformation, not just in the heart of David, but in all of our hearts. So I encourage you to read uh, later Psalm 32, which is a great contrast between Psalm 51, where it speaks of the release and the, the divine delight a believer can have when sin is confessed, when it's repented of, and when it's forgiven. Now, Psalm 51, there's two parts to it, verses 1 to 9 and then verses 10 to 19. And in these two parts, it really speaks to two great needs. First of all is reconciliation with God, and then secondly, transformation uh, by God once that reconciliation has taken place. And this was all with a view 
to bring glory to God because he's the one that does this. But it's also to set the believer free so that we can then serve God and serve his people. So this psalm is written by David. It's about David. But ultimately, it's a psalm about us, all of us. So if you're thinking, well, I haven't committed adultery, I haven't committed murder, it doesn't actually apply to me, um, and therefore I don't need to listen, well, think again. Think again. Verse 1, it says there, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. So David... He has been caught out. He's got nowhere to run, nowhere to hide. And there's no Old Testament ordinance in the law to make restitution for uh, his adultery, for his murder. And he knows that. He, he's, he's got nothing that he can sacrifice to God to make amends for this. So what does he do? Well, we've just read there in verse 1. What he does is he casts himself upon God's mercy, all right? And it's based on the the biblical truth that God is a loving and merciful God. In the first verse there, you can see it three times. Have mercy on me, O God. And then at the end, according to your abundant mercy. But it's according, in the middle there, steadfast love, okay? And the, the Hebrew word is hesed. And it's, it's a hard word to translate because there's just so much packed into this, this word hesed. It means unfailing covenantal love. It means loving kindness. It means steadfast love. It means faithful love. It means loyal love. All these things are packed into this word hesed. And so it's a, a, a committed covenantal love grounded in God's will, not on human merit. And it's, it's three times there, mercy, his, his loving kindness, his, his, his abundant mercy. So what can we take out of this verse for ourselves today? Well, we, just as David, must approach God knowing that he is a merciful and a forgiving God. Otherwise... If we don't approach God that way, then in some shape or form, we will carry the weight of our guilt around with us, you know, unnecessarily. And most unsaved people uh, that you talk to either intuitively or subconsciously know that their heart, that there's, there's a door of their heart which is like a closet which, which opens into this massive warehouse that actually uh, lives an army of skeletons. You know, we, we talk about having a skeleton, you know, families have a skeleton in the, in the closet. Well, all people, all unsaved people have this army of skeletons in their closet, in this warehouse. And that's why when you start talking about Jesus, talking about the gospel, talking about what Christ has done, most people, you know, when you talk to them, it's like backing off. They don't want to go there because they don't want to deal with what's in the closet. So we must know as believers, uh, God's has said. And where do we see this most powerfully? 
obviously, it's at the cross, the cross of Christ. All right, so when we sin, when we rebel against God's uh, uh, his, his ways in our lives, when we rebel, when we push back on that, we run to the cross, to the cross of Christ. So David, when he penned this, uh, lived in the Old Testament times. He didn't have the New Testament uh, to hold on to. And we have that. We have Christ. We have the cross that we can run to. Verse 2. Okay, this, uh, sorry, the second part, or the last part of verse 1 and verse 2, it says there, Blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. Now, I don't know whether you've seen it there, but there's a threefold piling up of terms. You, David says, my transgressions, my iniquity, my sin. Three times. He's, he's, he knows what he's done. He knows his guilt and he's making it clear, stating it three times there. But then balancing that, if you read there, there's also the threefold blot out, wash me, cleanse me. All right, so this, this threefold piling up of terms is there deliberately. So first of all, his transgressions, which is his outward rebellion, He's saying, blot this, you know, Lord my God, blot this out. A bit like paper. You know, in the old days when you'd, you'd write with ink and you could blot out the ink, the stain that was there. He's crying out to God, pouring out his heart to God, blot out my transgressions. And then he's talking about his iniquity, which, you know, his outward transgressions comes from the iniquity, uh, his, the inner uh, wickedness, the inner dirt of his heart and and Paul here is crying out wash me cleanse me of this just as you would wash soiled clothes and remove the dirt and the stains uh, David is crying out for this to be washed clean and then again he he says my sin you know which sin is that selfish self-centered twistedness of the human heart in on itself and he, again he's asking cleanse me of this wash me remove this from me. So David is asking God to do this because David knows he can't. He's incapable of removing this sin, making restitution for it. So he's asking God to do what only God can do. Verse 3 says, Therefore I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. So again, David here, he admits his guilt. He's not offering excuses. You know, it was my, my upbringing, my parents, it's this fault, you know, it's that fault. He, you know, no bars hold there. He admits his, his guilt. And without a conviction of sin, a conviction of sinfulness, there, there can be no admission of guilt and therefore no repentance. All right. And so as, as believers today in, in sharing the gospel with, with people, we have to be very aware of that. Unless there's a conviction of sin, there can be no repentance. And unless there's repentance, there can be, you can't take the further step to trust in what Christ has done. So we need to be careful. You know, when we're talking to unrepentant sinners and, you know, telling them, God loves you, that's probably one of the worst things you can say because all it does is confirm them in 
walking in their rebellion. Uh, the other week, uh, I, I was sharing my next-door neighbour. He's, he's 90. He's just turned 90. And, you know, I was, I was thinking, man, you know, he probably hasn't got too many years left. I've, I've, I've given him a Gospel of John and a Gospel of Luke and some other books to read. And, and I've, I've talked around the Gospel a few times with him. And I thought, you know, I really need... Next time I, I, I speak with this, uh, this guy, I really need to, you know, get to the Gospel. To the, and I remember I was sitting down with him and... You know, I was just saying, hey, you know, Jesus died on the cross for our sins. And it was interesting, his response, uh, because, you know, he's a lovely guy. He's, he's lived, you know, from what I can see, a, a very morally upright life. And, he, and, he, and his response to that was, well, I, I'm a good person. I, I try to do the best by everyone. Um, and, yeah, and he said, you know, I, I can see that religion, you know, helps people. But I don't need it. And I was thinking, man, that's, that's the issue. Unrepentant sinners see that they do not have a problem with God, that in fact they are a good person and therefore they don't need the cross. They don't actually need Jesus is forgiven. And when I was leaving, he even said, I'm not a heathen. I'm going, but you are, you are. So I'm praying I'll have another time to, you know, push home the fact that you are... I mean, I did say to him, I said, hey, how many lies have you told? And he goes, oh, well, yeah. He said, I did lie to that policeman when he asked me whether I was speeding or not. And I said, well, there you go, you know. A liar tells lies. Verse 4, it says, Against you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Now, David here is not denying, because you can read that and you sort of you can go, whoa, whoa, what's he saying here? He is not denying that he has sinned against Bathsheba and against Uriah, and he's not denying as king of Israel that he's actually sinned against all the people of Israel as king by what he did. But what he's saying is that primarily his sin is an offence against God. So his, what he's saying is his sin against God actually overshadows his sin against Bathsheba, his sin against Uriah, and his sin against the whole of Israel. So what he's admitting is that his rebellion against God is actually the root of his sin. He's not denying what he's done to Bathsheba, to Uriah, but he's basically saying that the bigger picture is that my sin is an offence and a rebellion against God. So what, how do we apply that to us today? Well, we don't just carry around a few sinful habits with us from our old lives prior to becoming Christians. Sin at the root is rebellion against God. And so we must see that when we face temptation, we are dealing with spiritual warfare. And what, what do we deal with spiritual warfare? How do we protect? How do we battle that? Well, it's with God's word and in prayer. We have to walk out our day in God's word, meditating upon his word, upon our heart, and applying that prayerfully as we are confronted with the temptations that we are daily bombarded with. Verses 5 and 6. Now, these two verses go together. It says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, 
You delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the inmost place. So what these two verses are doing, one is a statement of the shared human problem that we all share and it show, which is our innate sinfulness and then the cure, the divine cure for our, our problem. Now, in verse 5, David contrasts God's blameless ways in verse 4. He's talking about God's blameless ways with our innate uh, human sinfulness. So David sees that the deeper truth is ultimately that sin is rebellion and a, an offence against God. And that David here is he's admitting that he is a sinner, not just by choice. I mean, that his life, the sins that he's committed has shown that he's a sinner by choice, but it, that he's a sinner by nature, okay, by nature. So we are not sinners because we sin. You may have heard of this saying before, we are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners, okay, and this is the human condition, the problem that the human race has. And this was borne out in, through the, the Reformation uh, the Protestant Reformation, the, 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 this uh, uh, doctrine of, of total depravity. Now, total depravity, this doctrine gets a bit of a hard uh, rap sometimes. And what it means is the, that sin affects the totality of our being, the, the fibre of us. So what it teaches is that we're not utterly uh, depraved. All right, so Hitler was not as bad as he possibly could have been. He probably gave flowers to his mother on Mother's Day. You know, he was nice to people, you know, obviously to, to get what he wanted to get, but he was not utterly depraved. So what the Bible teaches is that the, at the fall, when Adam and Eve chose to rebel against God, there was a massive fall. All right, a massive change took place within their hearts and across the whole of creation. If you talk to Muslims, Muslims understand that the fall was only a small fall. And therefore, since there's only a small gap between humans and God, it's an easy one to step up to. All right, if you talk to Jehovah's Witnesses, they'll, they'll talk about humans being imperfect uh, that this is this word, we're just imperfect. And I'll even use this analogy that we're just like a pot with a little dent in it. Okay, That is a very wrong understanding, a very wrong picture of the human race. When the fall took place, massive change took place in the heart of humans and the whole creation. It was a massive fall. That's why it's called the fall. And the, the gulf between us and God cannot be breached in and of ourselves. You know, the Romans and Galatians teaches us that uh, prior to becoming Christians, prior to becoming regenerated by his spirit, we are in slavery, in bondage to sin, okay, without help, with, without an, uh, the ability to rescue or, saves, or save ourselves. Now, the rest of the book of, uh, the rest of uh, Psalm 51 uh, gives us the cure for this great problem that we have as humans. Verse 6 there, it says, Behold, you delight in the truth, in truth in the inward being. You teach me wisdom in the secret place. So you see there, it's you delight, you teach. Who's this? It's God. God delights to teach us truth in the inward being. 
being. He, he delights to teach us wisdom in the inmost place. So it's heart business that God wants to do with his people. And how does this heart business happen for us? Well, the heart business happens as we read and meditate upon God's word. God speaks to us by his spirit, through his word, in our heart. And as that wisdom, as, as he speaks to us, we meditate upon that and we then pray from that. So that's how it works as, as believers. We to meditate upon his truth. The spirit of God speaks to and illuminates this truth to our hearts. And then we pray from that. And that's where the transformation happens. So my encouragement, my challenge to us today is that more than anything else, the calibre of our Christian life and the fruit that we will bear in our Christian lives really depends upon how we deal and spend our time with God's word and pray from it. So time with God transforms. Time with God transforms. You know, we know we, when we hang out with people and we rub our shoulders with people, they affect us. You know, we, we know that if we're parents and we've got kids, it affects, you know, bad company corrupts good character. And it's exactly the same with God. If we spend time with God in the morning, meditating upon his word and praying out of that, that's where the transformation takes place. So if we neglect that, that will affect our Christian walk. So that is my encouragement, my challenge to us. We need to be a people of his word who spend time meditating upon his word. And that's where God transforms the inner part of our being. Verse 7 and verse 9 there, it's, uh, David says, Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I will shall be whiter than snow. And verse 9, hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Now, hyssop is this plant and it, it speaks, it draws from a Levit Leviticus uh, 14 uh, where, you know, the, they would dip the, the, the hyssop in the blood and cleanse, cleanse lepers, all right, an outward disease, which is speaking, you know, the inward disease of the human heart. Also in um, Exodus, where you have um, the Passover feast, and they would brush the lintels and the, you know, the uh, the door frame with the blood. And and what's what's the picture here that uh, David is is giving here? That 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 cleansing, it's pointing forward to the cross and what Jesus did on the cross with his blood. And again, as we focus upon the truth of God's word, we focus upon the gospel message of what Jesus has done upon the cross. All right, It speaks of the blood, the blood that cleanses us uh, of all our sin. And verse 9 there, he's, he's talking about asking God to hide his face uh, from the sins. And that's exactly what Jesus has done for us through the cross. Our sins are uh, as if they have not been committed. God has hidden his face from them if we've accepted Christ as our saviour. Now, verse 10 is one of the key uh, verses in this, in this psalm. It says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Now, this word create is exactly the same verb as in Genesis 1.1. 1, 1. 
okay, when God is creating the world. And the implications of that is huge. Okay, only God can create a new heart. And out of a new heart comes new desires. Okay, because what is our downfall? It's the desires that come out of our heart. As we see here in David's life, the desires of his heart was his downfall. And so he's realizing my core problem is my heart and the desires that issue forth from it. And that is our problem. And so what is David saying? He's saying, God, You've got to create a new heart in me so that I have new desires. Just keep your finger there in Psalm 51 and turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 24. Jeremiah chapter 24. Jeremiah 24 and verse 7. This is God speaking through Jeremiah. He says, I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord and they shall be my people and I will be their God for they shall return to me with their whole heart. And also turn forward to Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel 36 and verse 25 through to 27. I, this is God speaking again through prophet Ezekiel, I will sprinkle clean water on you. What's David asking for? He's asking to be washed and cleansed from his sin. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. See, it's a sovereign work of God, the new heart in a human being. When, when we are regenerated by the spirit, God gives us a new heart, which issues forth new desires. So Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people alive. That's Leonard Ravenhill. Okay, one of my favorite verses. He Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people alive. All right. He knows that it's has to be a heart transformation and it's a sovereign work of God. We cannot do it. The Talmud, which is not scripture, but it's commentary on Hebrew scripture. Uh, another one of my favourite quotes, it says, God wants the heart. Okay, He wants the innermost part of our being and he is the one that changes it. Well, you might say to me, well, Russ, if God is the one that does this, What's my part in this? Well, God, uh, God's word teaches that God is sovereign, but we are accountable. All right? we, we can't say, oh, well, just that's the way I'm at, I am. I've got an excuse here. No, the Bible clearly teaches that God is sovereign. He's the one that does this sovereign work in our heart, but we are accountable for 
our lives, for our choices. And I think Jonathan Edwards marries these two things better than anyone else. Now, Jonathan Edwards is probably one of America's greatest ever theologians. He summed it up very concisely. He says, labour, which means work, labour to be brought close to God. Labour to be brought close to God. In other words, it's God that does it, but we have to labour in that. And how do we labour in that? Verse 17, the sacrifices of... Sorry, we're back in Psalm 51 now. Verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. So our part in this is to come before God in humbleness and in humility, knowing our need, knowing that we cannot change our hearts, but we implore God prayerfully to change our hearts. That is our part. We come before God, we pour out our hearts to him, as David is doing here, realising without God he's done for, and that is us. This, this, this psalm, this, this pouring out of the heart of David has to be our life. It has to be our prayer life, that we are crying out to God to change our hearts, All right, and as we meet with God He transforms our hearts slowly but surely, day by day, as we keep coming before God and crying out to him and exposing our hearts and our minds to the truth of his word. He transforms us. Now in verse 18 and 19, interesting thing happens here. David shifts from crying out to God for himself and he's praying for Zion, which is God's people. All right, And so the interesting shift here, he takes his eyes off himself. He realises he's the king of Israel. He leads these people. And he, by what he's done, he's been a horrendous role model, a horrendous leader. And he realises he needs to be praying for God's people. And the same deal is for us. We are saved to serve God. God's people. We are saved to signpost what Jesus has done for us, and we are saved to share the light of the gospel, evangelism with people, and and saved to disciple one another. We disciple one another as we walk together on our way home to glory. So, in conclusion, God is in the business of rescuing and transforming. Uh, uh, repentant sinners that's God's business I want to leave us with three verses 1 John 1 9 okay it's one we've got to daily come back to 1 John 1 9 if we confess our sins he is faithful and just and will purify us from all unrighteousness he is the one that does this sovereign transforming purifying work in our hearts Another verse to finish on, which ties in beautifully with this, is 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 18. And we all with unveiled face. Who's that referring to? The unveiled face. Old Testament. It's Moses. All right. So Paul here in Corinthians is paralleling us as New Testament believers with Moses. 
And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Where does that happen? Where do we behold the glory of Christ? In his word, and in particular in the cross, the gospel message of Jesus. We have to daily come back to that. We have to be gospel-focused, cross-centred people daily. That is where we are transformed as we are beholding what Christ has done for us that transforms. And the last one we're going to look at before we finish is Psalm 147. So back in the book of Psalms, right at the end of the book of Psalms, Psalm 147. And verse 10 and 11. He, this is God, he, his delight is not in the strength of the horse, nor in his pleasure in the legs of a man. That's what's happening at the moment with the AFL finals, isn't it? People taking pleasure in the skill and the, the legs of man. But that's not what God delights in. His delight is not in the strength of the horse, nor his pleasure in the legs of man. But the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those whose hope is in his steadfast love. So we have to hold these two things. God takes pleasure in those who fear him. God is a holy God, a God that you do not mess with, a, God, a holy God. We hold that in one hand. And in the other hand, he delights in those who hope in his steadfast love. There is that word again, hesed, his steadfast, loving, merciful kindness. That's what we have to walk in, the truth of that. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word to us. We thank you for what you have done through your son on the cross for us. Lord, you are a merciful God, a God of loving kindness, a God that loves to forgive. Lord, and we realise um, our hearts, Lord, We've, you know, if we've given our hearts to you, Lord, you, you are, have uh, regenerated them, you've, you've changed them, and you are still in the process of changing our hearts, Lord. And we pray as a people that you would continue to draw us to yourself and that we would continue to have the desire to meet with you and speak with you and pour out our hearts before you daily and so that we might walk in your ways, bring glory to you and shine your light in this dark world. So help us, we pray, in this Lord Jesus, for your glory and in your holy name we pray. Amen.